the whole fleet of them. Look on the ASA. My gosh. They're all going against the wind. It was basically a cube with inside of sphere where the points of the cube uh, were touching outside of the sphere. So this isn't anything that just is limited to the United States. It's a worldwide phenomenon. Hi, this is Sean Cahill, and you're listening to That UFO Podcast. Hi folks, welcome back to a very special edition of That UFO Podcast. We have our first round table, as was announced last week on Twitter, and you got in touch in your numbers. Uh, originally it was going to be Sean Cahill as well, but Sean just for a few different reasons had to pull out, but he will be coming back on the show down the line, and we very much wish Sean well. But who we do have on the show with us today, we have Gary Voorhees, who you will remember was the first ever guest on That UFO Podcast, which seems a lifetime ago now, but it's just coming up four months now. And he is the vice president of UAPX. We have Kevin Day, who is the president of UAPX, and Patrick Hughes, who is the director of information technology, if I've got that all correct. I'd like to say um, welcome and good afternoon to all you gents. Gary, first of all, how are you doing? Good afternoon. Hey, thanks for having us on. Thank you for the opportunity to be here. No, thank all of you for your, for your time as well. So it's um, great to speak to you. Um, so the format, uh, what we're going to do for the listeners is start off with each of you introducing yourselves and a little bit about the role you played in the now infamous events of November 2004. Um, you might have done some other interesting things that month, but I'm sure the main thing was your your uh, activities on the Nimitz Carrier Group. Um, we're then going to move on to discuss a few different things off the back of that, how things have progressed and changed over the last kind of decade and a half, not to age anyone on here, but it is now getting on <laughs> 16 years. And then obviously from there, uh, we've got some questions on UAPX and a lot of listener questions that will make up the bulk of the show as well. Um, if we could start off, Gary, uh, yourself, if you want to just introduce yourself, your background and what your, your kind of role was in the events of 2004. All right. Uh, well, my name is Gary Voorhees, Jr. Uh, I was an Aegis computer technician at the time, uh, a junior personnel. Uh, I was the one that actually operated and maintained uh, all the Aegis weapon system, all of the, the mainframe computers that ran that system, and uh, the consoles that uh, operated in, in, C- in CIC. Um, CIC is Combat Information Center, for those who didn't know. That's uh, when you're looking in the movies, all those big screens that they're looking at. We took, we took care of all those. Um, and, of course, uh, it's, it's the, the story has been beaten to a crisp, so we'll just sum it up into, uh, you know, we tracked unknown aircraft for you know, right around seven days back in 2004, and uh, it's now become... Uh, pretty renowned since the uh, United States government uh, military has basically admitted that what we saw was real. It certainly was. Uh, thanks for that little summary. Um, PJ, uh, Patrick Hughes, if you want to just introduce yourself, as I've kind of done for you anyway, and tell the listeners a little bit about you. Sounds good. My name is Patrick, or PJ. Um, I answered it just about anything. Um, I was an avionics technician um, way back when, when all this happened. 
And while I wasn't special like Gary or Kevin, all I, my my so-called claim to fame, as some people call it, is a couple of U.S. Air Force guys showed up on my ship, knocked on my door with my uh, executive officer, and took a whole bunch of my classified stuff and left. And uh, I'm going to go ahead and uh, counteract the fact that he says he's not special. It takes uh, it t- it does take a unique person to be able to be able to that that level of technician in the Navy because there's a, a lot of education and a lot of schooling, and not everybody makes it through that that type of school. Um, so, I mean, we're not talking SEALs here, but we're talking you know, it's it's t- still pretty hardcore to go through a lot of that uh, training. Yeah, PJ wasn't fixing seagulls for anyone who's uh, interested in the technology that he was working with. Uh, actually, uh, they were hypersonic seagulls. Uh, hypersonic. I was I was just uh, informed that on my own feed. Yeah, my apologies. And uh, lastly, but not least, uh, Kevin, if you want to introduce yourself to the listeners too, please. Yeah, I'm uh, Kevin Day, uh, 2004. It was actually my last ship on the Princeton. It was actually my last underway, too, believe it or not, when this happened. Um, when I went down, I had 18 years sea time sitting behind that Spy One radar system on the age. This was my third age of ship. I am a Top Gun graduate. Went through Top Gun in 1998, and I was a anti-air warfare coordinator on the ship. It was basically just the guy that um, launches the missiles if we ever had to in a time of war or even for an exercise. And uh, I agree, man. These uh, objects, whatever the hell they were, they acted as if they were alive like some super capable flock bird is how I like to describe it. They were sentient and they were aware and they were apparently precognitive as well. Cause you seem to go um, in directions and ways that just kind of seemed like they were reading the pilot's minds. If you will, it was very, very, very strange um, encounter to say the least. Very, very strange, but obviously now very, very famous. And folks, if you want to hear the detail behind the encounter, there are now numerous documentaries, numerous shows. Uh, there are the Nimitz Encounters on YouTube, where you can see Kevin, PJ, and Gary all being interviewed. Gary's been interviewed on my own show in the very first episode. The story is now infamous, and obviously Unidentified has been a massive smash hit now. The second season finishes as we're recording this this evening, and I've been lucky enough to see the the final episode as well, and it certainly does end on a bombshell. It lasts one minute and 40 seconds, uh, if anyone else has seen it by now when this gets released. Um, I won't spoil it for anyone who hasn't seen it. what I do want to get straight into talking about those speaking of bombshells, Patrick, uh, PJ, on Twitter, you recently dropped a bit of a bombshell uh, and you added to the story. And like Gary had said before, this has been beaten to a crisp and this is something that just doesn't seem to go away. However, um, you added to the story that uh, a West Coast land-based entity, uh, and you know what the wording's like on UFO Twitter, people will jump on the slightest thing as as you find out. Um, you said, so a West Coast land-based entity was tied to your battle group, and if what they saw was released, it would back up what you guys were saying all along. So what is it that you guys have been saying all along, PJ? What are they backing up if they're released? I mean, essentially, all the tracks that, that Kevin saw, all the maneuvers Kevin saw, all the stuff Gary saw, you know, all the stuff the Hawkeye saw, there was an outside group. And the only person who's figured it out is Gary, although he only partially figured it out. No, <laughs> that saw I know exactly what you're talking about. That's just the only uh, 
non-classified thing I could find about that particular place. <laughs> yeah. uh, and I said, Gary knows. So listen, the, the word classified and non-classified is probably going to come up a few times here. What what can you talk about then regarding this? Just to elaborate on it a bit, because PJ opened up uh, a bit of a thread on your on your Twitter feed, and people really wanted to know. So, so what can you talk about dancing around the, the classified nature of things? I mean, there's there's a whole bunch of stuff up and down the West Coast, from you know Upper Washington down to San Diego, all for various reasons, to various stuff, various. There just happened to be one spot that. The Hawkeyes worked with routinely. Um, I'm sure Gary, whether or not he realized it, has dealt with them before. Um, but I happen to know one of the individuals there because they did work with our Hawkeyes. And I've talked to him on and off over the years. And I had recently shared Dave Beatty's documentary with him just because I knew he was around and he was there. And all of a sudden, he's like, Hey, I, I, I know stuff about this. And he starts telling me. Um, we had uh, a lengthy off the record conversation, so I can't say everything he said. Um, but, but they saw all the same stuff. Their, their systems and their sensors were able to track the same stuff that the Spy One did, the same crazy maneuvers Ooh. that Kevin saw. The same, yeah, I didn't know that. The, the, you know, all of it. You know, I don't know if I don't know if they have recordings of it. I don't know what was made of it, but they saw it, you know, and they are completely separate from the battle group. So it's not like they were seeing our information. They were seeing anything we were sharing. They were seeing it on their own gear and they were at a fair distance from where we were. Okay, so in my mind, and I'm not saying this is what it was, but uh, and I my uh, knowledge of the West Coast of America is very limited. I just know they have one, okay, and an East Coast. So I'm imagining something like some kind of missile defense building or let's just say like a NASA office. It's just tracking all sorts of things that they might be tracking. And what you're saying is these guys have whatever systems that picked up the same contacts that you know Gary picked up, that Kevin picked up, and that eventually kind of had a bit of a play with the, 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 the carrier group over the course of, you know, a week. Is that right? Correct. And did and they pick- uh, the, uh, the system that he was talking about, uh, you know, after World War II and, uh, you know, and us being surprised attacked, uh, that was kind of the pre- the system that they went all up and down the coast. I'm talking, I'm pretty, I think he's talking about our missile defense system, which then tracks pretty much a fair distance out from all borders and all territories that we control. Um, it would have, it would have definitely have picked up the same things that we were. Plus I'm pretty sure a lot of those systems are now tied into the CEC systems too. So one thing that did come across in the questions that I'll get to later on was the, the military language that some of the people have been using. I, I can only pretend to, to understand fully the questions that you guys will, um, will get to later on as well. But something that was kind of jumped on uh, was that you had to state, PJ, that the entity had no control or association with the object because one of the things, and I'll address this, I think, uh, to Kevin, um, given how much you saw and you talked about the way these objects behaved, a lot of people now are starting to wonder, especially with some of the recent journalists and investigative journalists online, 
are these objects actually man-made? And there are people coming out saying this was potentially Air Force that were covering this up. This has been something that the, the, the US government themselves have basically put out there to to test its own armed forces against. What would you say to that, given what you experienced? Um, you know, I have a lot of trouble believing this was us because I, for one, was psychologically affected by this. As it turns out, I didn't know it at the time. And I um, have since been diagnosed with PTSD. And they thought it was from an earlier event that happened in my life when on my first deployment on the Vincennes, when we shot down an air rating airliner by mistake. Um, but I think it was more related to this. So if it turns out that this was us testing us and it had this type of effect on some of us, um, there might be hell to pay, you know, I'm not going to be happy if that's, um, turns out to be the truth. I'll tell you that right now. Oh, uh, I, this, this, profound, this, this profoundly affected my life. I wouldn't be honestly, I wouldn't be surprised if it was, uh, you know, something of ours but then again in the same respect what the only thing that really troubles me with it being like ours it would really mean that they're capable of keeping the type of secrets that we all hope that they can't uh because like the level of technology that was involved with these crafts was you know i I couldn't even tell you how many years ahead because it's it's too many I, i don't understand how that kind of technology could be held secret for this long because it would have if it i mean because we've been seeing these things for 60 years so probably more than that i mean if you want to talk you know ancient aliens anything like that i mean they 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 cite about a billion and one other references throughout all of our human history where we've been seeing stuff in the sky so you know I, i don't prescribe to the little green man theory as of yet because i haven't seen one but I don't say that, uh, you know, I think that this is not a win-win situation for even our company because, I mean, I've even sat down with our guys, our, our board of directors and said, look, you know, uh, you know, we've got serious thoughts about doing this research because there's some, there's some avenues that, and some, some things that, you know, we really have to think about because a, no matter what it is, we're going to run into the government at a certain point because, if it is government technology, we're going to run into the government because we're going to have proof of it. If it's not, then we're going to run into the government because we have proof of it. <laughs> so no matter what, we're running into the government. And so either our government is the most shady pieces of crap that can that can uh, hide this level of technology for this me- this amount of time, or they're not. And either way, it's scary as hell because one way we we're we're all not in control and in the other way guess what we're not in control still <laughs> so we all just kind of live this beautiful illusion of freedom at this point yeah, <laughs> it's kind of scary shit it's both very good points and kevin you touch on something that i've had a few chats recently with with guests about and ryan Spra- uh, ryan sprague has just released a book that touches on the human element of alien or et experiences and uap experiences and like you say that that's huge and not even to go down the route of you know claims that could go in against the u.s government from you know its own armed forces and people and a variety of different areas but like you say as well gary that if this turns out this is our technology just as in humankind then 
it's such a leap that there are so many more questions of, okay, so where's it came from? Is it back engineered from something else? Have we just one day broken the laws of physics and uncovered all this great new stuff? Why haven't we been using it? You know, it, it just there's so many different avenues to go down. However, a show that you're all very aware of and a group to the Stars Academy, uh, Chris Mellon, Lou Elizondo, Jim Semivan, Tom DeLonge, uh, Hal Putov and the guys, they they very much, even still in this second season where PJ, you've been a regular contributor, they are very much adamant and they keep going back to this isn't Russian, this isn't Chinese, this more than likely isn't ours. They seem very confident with that. Um, so like PJ, to you, given your experiences with Unidentified, how how confident are you, again, having worked with the, the guys on Unidentified, that this is or isn't US technology? I mean, the only person I really talked to from, from that whole group is Lou Elizondo. And we had a much longer conversation than, you know, was actually shown on the, on the series. And we never really got into, is it ours? It is it theirs? He cleared up a whole bunch of questions I had about what happened to my stuff after he took it, where it went, what it was used for. Um, he's the person I like actually learned all that information from. Um, but I got the feeling from him that all he wants to do is know what it is. I don't think he cares one way or the other. He just wants to know what it is just like the rest of us. And again, to not spoil it because I'm more than likely going to release this just before the, the finale of unidentified this evening. They, they wrap up with a very, it's quite a moving summary, and I don't know if any of you have seen the final episode yet. They, they wrap up with a, a very moving summary of, they're, they're quite clear on what they think this is without saying it. And again, the line is used, this is not ours, this is not Russian, this is not Chinese. And something Lou Elizondo has said in the past is talking about humankind's and mankind's, plural, that it's not just us on this planet. And again, that's something he finishes the series with and he gets a little bit emotional about it. And again, that comes across the aspect of if there's if there's more than us on this planet, then it opens up a whole new, you know, a whole new ball game. It changes humanity. Uh, and again, th- those are all questions that are for hypotheses and down the line and a lot of different conversations. What I'd like to ask, though, for you guys, so to the Stars Academy, it's really been the key in unlocking the door, which so many are now walking through, including people like yourselves that are now following in your footsteps. Do you think there's more to come from this incident itself? So even just the other day, PJ, you've obviously dropped that bombshell on Twitter and it's it's added a new element to the conversation. However, is there much more to get out of this or are we now kind of flogging a dead horse? No way. We we have our group has been vindicated over and over and over again. I think it's still going to keep happening. Um, every agency that comes out um, pretty much backs up everything we've all said. And uh, I my gut instinct is that this was not our stuff, and um, that in that that in itself asks a lot of you know brings up a lot of uh, real real important questions. If it wasn't ours, who the hell's was it? <laughs> was it even from Earth? You know, it's, I think this story has legs, and it's gonna just it's just gonna keep delivering. I really do. Well, I know as I for uh, you know as for me, uh, I, I think our events basically 
just the straw that broke the camel's back. It's, it's the, the catalyst, uh, you know, they'll look back and, and take a look at, you know, how this all started and it'll be the, you know, that New York times article about our event and then all of us coming out and, you know, and then Fravor coming out and saying his piece. And then the, you know, just recently, um, the pilot that actually recorded the video itself came out to clear a lot of things up too. So, I mean, it's just going to keep happening because there was, you know, I think we had like, I think 500 and something people on my ship and 7,000 people on the carrier. That's a lot of people. And that's a lot of people that knew about it. I mean, even if they didn't directly have anything to do with it or any systems that interacted with it, you know, those communities, they, they know, we all know. And I mean, it's just like with, uh, you know, with Kevin, Kevin's been definitely affected by this, you know, tremendously. Um, we all have in, in one way or another. And, you know, for me, it's just been uh, absolutely mind, mind boggling to, to know that this is finally coming to light. Cause I honestly never thought it would. Um, I remember when I first came out about it, I, you know, I, I did a lot of phone calls to a lot of important people to make sure that it was all right that I said anything about it because I really didn't want to knock on the door, you know. And so I, I got a lot of my old buddies that, you know, they didn't go into cable when they got out. They they stayed in, the, you know, the circles and, you know, got the, the high-level government jobs. And, you know, so they, they, uh, they let me, you know, I, I said, all right, you know, I got the least to lose out of everybody. So... <laughs> Let's let's do it. <laughs> God bless you, Gary Voorhees. You, you've all played an incredible part in this, and telling those stories and being the first people to do it, it has been amazing. And like I said, there are now so many more following in your footsteps. So no doubt, in, in the last three years, we've seen an incredible amount of progress. And for those that have a keen interest in ufology, like myself, you know, people who initially just were interested in other aliens coming from other planets and spaceships. The conversation in three years has changed incredibly and just the understanding people have as well. There's a lot of indication for people like yourself as well, uh, and military, you know, commercial pilots, police officers, and just the general public that report and see UAPs that, you know what, they're not crazy. Well, not all of them. And that, you know, some of these sightings are as incredible as they sound. If this same incident that happened to you in 2004 was repeated again tomorrow, and, and we hear that up until, you know, recently, and you guys might even know more recent than me, that these events are still happening. How do you feel the conversation would change from that military perspective? I don't know who wants to come in on that. Uh, I think if I was, you know, an ages computer technician, or actually they're, they're not, there's no such thing as a computer technician anymore. They call them Q70 techs or whatever they are now. It's been so many years. Uh, but, uh, I think at this point, if it were to happen to me again, and I still had the prior knowledge of the 2004 event, I think I would have a lot more information on hand uh, when I got out. (laughs) I think think I'd have a nice little safety deposit box for when I pass. (laughs) I certainly would have kept copies. Yeah, especially today, yeah, I would have kept better notes, better copies. I had my logbook, of course, but I just had real brief notes like Latin longs and time stuff like that and who I was controlling. But I would have definitely kept better notes. In fact, when this, in 2009, after I retired, 
I tried to tell people about this and even some of my closest associates would look like, you know, what's wrong with Kevin? You know, for sure that happened. Right. So I wrote, I wrote the story and I published it in the library of Congress, just in case the story ever did come to light that, um, it would be some sort of contemporaneous proof that it really happened. And that's exactly what happened. Strangely enough. Ironically with Kevin doing that very thing, it's, uh, it's made me go back and look at a lot of science fiction I've read a little differently. <laughs> it's like, wait a minute. <laughs> How did they get these intricate ideas like this? <laughs> and uh, and on really that, happen, yeah. it's funny you mentioned, have any of you read Chains of the Sea? Because this is a, a, a short story recently that's kind of came to prominence with Lou Elizondo mentioning or, or having read it. And a lot of people, again, have jumped on this bandwagon. Have any of you read that book? Or short story. I have not. I've actually been getting knee deep into uh, Philip K. Dick lately. Say the name of the book again. It's Chains of the Sea. It's a bit of a short story. No, I haven't read it. I'm no, sure I haven't. Um, probably worth checking out. It wouldn't take you too long. Uh, but again, people are getting on the idea that a lot of the ideas that are now coming to the front that, you know, we're not alone on the planet. These things may have been here or in different frequencies, different dimensions that we're starting to see in various different books and, and prose, like you mentioned, Gary, some of the things you're now reading, it's like, oh, wow, was this pure chance that people have got this right or, you know, so accurate so long ago? Or did they have any kind of prior knowledge? So that's something. What I'd like to know, Kevin, if I could just ask a question, on the idea of the military conversation changing. If someone in your position now, uh, today, the same sort of event happened, do you feel they would have a different experience that you, than you had? Do you think they're going to be able to come forward with all the progress that's been made? I believe so, yeah. I believe there's probably, in fact, procedures in place now that didn't just didn't exist when we were serving and designed specifically to deal with uh, unknown aerial phenomenon. You know, because um, I got to tell you, Andy, um, the thing that concerned me greatly in 2009, 2008, when I retired, when no one would listen to me, um, was what, what would happen if this thing happened off the coast of Iran when I really did have missiles on the airplanes and on the ships? And somebody freaked out and overreacted. It, man, this thing could cause a freaking war, you know, that no one wants. And I think because of that, um, safety of flight issues, I think there's probably some pretty um, trained, uh, uh, written and trained procedures in place now that just weren't there when we were serving in 2004. So, and if it, if it did happen, I think um, it's all going to get recorded and logged and spoken about at this point. I, I truly do. Um, that's, that's and my evidence for that saying it, 2015, I mean, those guys came out. You know, between that was eleven years later. You know, so There's that's been just a, my thoughts on it. No, no, that's good. There's been a lot of talk as well recently around the the fact the carrier group had a nuclear element to it was some kind of attraction to these objects. Again, unidentified had a whole episode, and I'll come to PG on that one because uh, you rolled your eyes. So you must have some kind of comment you want to make, and I've been more than happy to hear it. What What are your thoughts on that aspect of it? Is that putting two and two together and getting five? Uh, I mean, I just don't think the amount of nuclear subs we have, the eleven nuclear carriers we have. You know, I I feel we would see a lot more than what we've seen if that were the case. I don't think it has anything to do with nuclear power. 
and that's coming from a guy who slept <laughs> next to a reactor for an entire cruise. And it had no ill effects whatsoever, which is always good to see. Um, <laughs> None that I know of. <laughs> um, so listen, what's next? The UAP task force has now been signed off. That's made its way through the Senate in the US, which is great. And I'm learning more and more about US politics, as the whole world is over the last few years. And we've all got our eyes on things, you know. Um, but staying away from the political side of it and just focusing on the UAP task force, with that forming, uh, Gary, I'll bring this to you. What's your opinions on the UAP task force? What's that going to bring regarding the conversation and the movement? Uh, realistically, I think it's just a dog and pony show. I, I don't think it's going to really do much other than maybe distribute more information that they actually want us to know. Um, when it comes down to it, there's hundred, there's over 100 other countries that are starting up a space program. 23 of those countries are slated to go to the moon. With that many countries now starting actual space programs, I think that that's probably more the catalyst of uh, why they're needing to get more of this information out faster. And, I mean, there could also be something that we have no idea about and uh, – the idea that there's another race of beings living on our planet with us uh, is not very far-fetched. I mean, we've already figured out there's water deep below. Um, that that giant borehole that Russia made, we figured out through that that there's literally an ocean underneath the damn, the damn crust, which we never knew was there. You know, there literally could be an entire civilization underneath our crust. We, we, we've never been there. We don't know what's really actually there. So, I mean, they could have been here the entire time we've been involving and just like, you know, patted us on the head. Oh, that's a good monkey. You're doing so good. <laughs> you know, I mean, but when it comes down to it, people still have to realize that they can't see us as equals. If they were already developed before we even started to even, you know, when we were you know, beating each other with rocks and eating meat raw because we couldn't start a fire, you know, <laughs> yeah, there's no way in hell they're going to treat us any like, equal, as equals. So keep that in mind. And I suppose when you say that, that makes me think a little bit about someone like Tom DeLong, who I know is a divisive figure still, and he makes a lot of outrageous comments, but he talks about a disturbing aspect to the phenomena. And is that something that, you know, poten potentially he's, he's getting at? Um, Gary? Well, I think with him being the owner of that company, uh, you know, and the one view that I have about Lou is, you know, kind of some, some to sum it up is, that he doesn't want to know what it is. He already knows what it is. And because of his ties with his prior jobs, just like all of us, you know, I can't tell you the exact range of spy one Bravo radar, but you know, I can tell you what we can't do. I can, you know, lead you to the water, but I can't force you to drink it. You know, I mean, we all know for a fact that there's, craft that enter our atmosphere that can do Mach 20, 25 plus that have no wings that have no discernible engines that somehow can maneuver on a dime at any angle speed or, you know, any vector at all. Uh, you know, that in itself should be amazing enough. That should be literally enough to say, yeah, let's, let's, let's get some people on this. Uh, you know, wow. You know, and it's for as many people that actually have 
credible backgrounds uh, that have credibility that have seen these things. Just the empirical evidence alone should have already lent to the scientific communities. So that denotes that there has been an active measure of trying to keep this all under wraps. Uh, you know, there's no way in hell you can tell me that the empirical evidence that there is out there now is not enough to, to base any type of science on. I mean, look at some of the whacked out science that they've already done that it's okay because it has nothing to do with something this big. <laughs> Can I just go right back to almost one of your first comments you made on this as well? Because at first it sounded almost dismissive, but you've, you've made a really great point off the back of it regarding the UAP task force that it's a bit going to be potentially, in your view, a bit of a dog and pony show. But then you mentioned that we've got 23 other countries potentially planning on going to the moon. Do you mean the idea that they want to control the narrative as in the US government or the UAP task force do because these other countries are going to go into space and then start to see things that we can't guarantee they keep under wraps. Is that what you mean? Uh, what it means, basically, yeah, basically these, uh, all these countries can't be guaranteed that they're going to say what they want you to say or that what the, what our government wants them to say or what the collective of governments that can go into space will say. You know, I mean, uh, when it comes down to it, if they don't control the narrative, they got to make sure at least they're controlling the storyline as it goes. So if we already know about it, ain't no big deal that, you know, Estonia decided that they put up a satellite and then saw literally something docked with it or something. And then they said, Hey, yeah. So this happened <laughs> all of a sudden we don't, we don't, we don't know what's up anymore and we're not the ones on top of things. And I think that that is. Andy, this is a, a, yep. oh, go ahead. Sorry. I jumped on you. No, I'll go on Kevin. Can you hear me? Yes, yeah, yeah. Hey, Andy, uh, my my uh, thoughts on the task force are this, um, and I'll I'll just make this my, my public announcement to the members of the task force, Senator Rubio and all those guys. If you guys are serious about finding these things and understanding what it is, then you might want to consider helping to fund our expeditions because we have a whole bunch of really smart people lined up to go on these ships with a really um, full lineup of new technologies, and some of them are still under development. And we are ready to go. We just we need funding. We need a little bit of money. And unfortunately, it's not that much money that we need. None of us are getting paid. None of us ever hope to get paid doing this. It's strictly for logistics. All of our funding requirements and any any other requirements that we have. It's not to you know we're not doing this to pay people. And Kevin, listen, it's, it's a great timing because my next question is uh, asking yourself to talk a little on UAPX and its status. Now, UAPX, my last conversation about it was with Gary back in April, late April, early May. Um, and we talked about UAPX starting up and obviously COVID's been around and it's here we are four months later and it's, it's still doing the rounds, unfortunately, regardless what people want to think about it. Uh, where are UAPX as a company at and what are the plans? What's the kind of status of it? Go ahead, Gary, uh, fill that and I'll fill in some, some cracks and stuff. Right. If you don't mind. All right. So primary reason why I'm going to be filling this in is because uh, due to Kevin having a lot of personal things going on with the fire and the, uh, uh, you know, their golf course and, you know, he's, he's had to spend a lot of time in his personal life where I've kind of taken the reins up to take care of the day-to-day -day stuff. Um, so currently uh, we did a restructuring since the last time we talked. 
uh, we've kind of, you know, kind of had to streamline it due to budget restraints uh, versus, you know, uh, what, what, because like I said, our, our, our whole priority is just for just to go out and do this research off the coast of San Diego. So I, with that in mind, I had to look at our staff and we had to look at the people that were involved with the company and, you know, say, okay, you know, is this person really viable for this mission? And it had nothing to do personally, whether they were viable in any other capacity, it was just, I had to look at just our mission. You know, this mission is to do this particular task. We're probably going to have about enough money to get about 15 people out on this boat. And that's so that we can maximize the amount of money for our, t- our testing equipment, uh, for budget for things so that we can actually get the detailed information that we want to out there. And uh, I know last time I, I spoke about how, you know, we plan on getting re- ridiculous amounts of information and we do and there's a lot of groundwork that has to be laid to get that because we have to be able to set parameters so that we're not wasting a lot of time on information that's already been gathered by national organizations or other or the other private entities that make their uh, findings public um, so we've been utilizing a lot of the time this go covid downtime to do that restructuring and you know currently uh we're doing a lot of emailing back and forth and you know it's a very pish posh kind of way of trying to get all this stuff done so uh right now i'm getting us on board with uh, the google suite so that we can utilize a lot of that management and we can start working on the same projects at the same time and uh start to start to actually get more done without having to, uh, you know, keep waiting for an email to come back or waiting for a response. You know, people can just go in and check on the project, add what they have to add and then move on. And once we get that done, that's going to be a big mile marker for us because then that, that brings our productivity to a ridiculous level. And then uh, I'm hoping by the end of the month to have, our website complete with our Patreon and with our uh, with forums, which people will be able to interact with us on a, on a more personal basis. Uh, the for uh, you know, our Patreons will have access to a Patreon only forum, which then they can they can actually get one on one with with well, practically anybody they want because. Uh, you know, all of us will be active on those forums, uh, talking back and forth. You know, it's a way for the public to be able to interact with us and, you know, give us their ideas, comments. And, you know, you never know where the next great idea is going to come from. So um, and that, those forums are eventually going to roll into my uh, my uh, archives idea that uh, we were tr- I was trying to roll out a little earlier but once I had to do the start doing the day-to-day with UAPX I kind of had to push that back uh, but I still plan on doing that aspect of our company too but you know one project at a time <laughs> got a little too ambitious for my own for my own good uh, but uh, right now we're uh, we're working on getting uh, grants through some through particular college uh we've written up a grant and a proposal and uh i can't really comment on any any who where what and you know hopefully that goes through where uh we've uh, already set up a, a paypal account so people can start to donate to the cause um hopefully by the end of the month we'll have some uh, some t-shirts that people can buy saying you know 
everything from, you know, just our logo to, you know, I support the, I support, you know, UAPX type stuff. Uh, at first it'll be kind of some simple logos, but, uh, we'll eventually have some, some more trendy stuff on there. Uh, it's mostly just to try to get that store up and running, uh, get the infrastructure done and then we're going to move from there. Um, but I figured within the next three months tops, we should have the complete infrastructure of UAPX completely done. Um, all everything up and running smooth like butter. And, uh, from there, basically by the end of this, the end of this year, I'm kind of hoping that we could basically go anytime we have enough money to actually go. Basically, that's where I want to get us to the point where we're basically, as soon as we got the money, we're out the door. And when you look at the UAPX site at the moment, it's got that mission statement on there. And the thing that stands out to me is very much there's a correlation between that it talks about whale migrations and that mid-November time of year. And you do still hope to see that you can find UAPs in a certain area at that time of year. Is that still the thinking? Well, after we did a lot of research, uh, you know, from, you know, historical data in that area, looking at, uh, I don't think it really matters what time we go because there's been sightings year round in that area. It's a literal hotspot. I mean, it's people have seen them in the winter, in the summer, in the fall, every month. Uh, I think there's been at least one sighting every day of the year somewhere around that area in the Catalinas or off the coast or down toward more closer to Baja. But that whole area, every single day, people are seeing things. So that's been the case for, for years. Yeah, for years now. Yeah. And I mean, we have at least a hundred years of historical data for that area that, that just denotes that. I mean, there's, there's some people that have told me that they could bring you out every day of the week and show you something. Now, granted, what, what kind of phenomenon they're actually going to come out, come out and show us, you know, I mean, they could be, I have no idea, but we hope, we hope that we're going to get some, some good data, but worst case scenario, we can do a thorough analyzation, you know, analyze this area so thoroughly that we are be able to know the differences between, you know, cause this will be the first time that we go out. Um, and this is going to be a lifelong venture. We're going to have to study this area over and over and over again so that we can compare original data to current data to, you know, and keep going on and then have a historical data of that area of, you know, temperatures, migrations of animals, what type of plant and fauna, plants and animals that live there, um, how many of them can affect frequent, different frequencies, um, you know, what kind of radio stations are out there, what kind of people are out there, uh, you know, what kind of, uh, all, all the projects that are done in that area because there's a lot of government issue, government testing that goes out that way. When I talk about, when I say government testing, I'm thinking radar systems, sonar systems, uh, missile control systems, you know, th- things like that. You know, th- these are you know, the benign stuff that none of us are interested in, but they all use frequencies in some way, shape, or form. They all use, uh, they all affect that area in some way. And basically we don't want to, we don't want to leave any stone unturned when we when we look at that when we look at that area. We want to know uh, how much radiation is you know if there's any radio radiation hotspots of any type of radiation, whether it's you know gamma, beta, alpha. You know, I mean, all, I mean some of these radiations only last for you know they're they're very very insubstantial 
substantial by themselves unless there's a source emitting them at the time. You know, so if we're getting big hot spots of these types of radiations, well, what the hell's causing it? You know, I mean, these are all indications that we're going to be able to try, hopefully track, find, and, you know, keep doing more research on it. And then the best thing that could happen is we can actually catch them and find them and, and, and see them on radar, get the tape type of data that we had in the service that would be absolutely amazing, and that's the ultimate goal, but it's just going to take time. And I'll make sure the links again are uh, for the PayPal as well, because they're really worth the cause, and I look forward to getting some of those T-shirts, and you can count me among one of your first patrons as well. I'll make sure I'm I'm signed up to that when the time comes. Um, listen, we'll take a short... It. No, of course. We'll take a short Thank break. Um, when we come back, uh, we'll do some listener questions, okay? Folks, that's all we had time for in part one. I wanted to get this episode out to you ASAP. So part two will be dropping in the next 24 to 48 hours and we'll conclude the show with your listener questions and that lasts about an hour and 20 to an hour and a half. There are some really good stuff in there and it fills in a few blanks as well. We did get a lot of questions over to the show, so thank you very much. Remember, you can support the show at patreon.com forward slash that UFO podcast. Signing up on the $1 tier, I'll send you out some stickers free of charge worldwide. And if you sign up still on the $10 tier this month, I'll send out a That UFO podcast logo t-shirt as well. Much appreciated. Please like, subscribe, retweet, share on all the platforms you can. We've got YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, and of course on Twitter, you can converse with myself at UFO UAP AM. Again, folks, in the next couple of days, the second part with your listener questions will be released. This was a lot of fun to record and I hope you've enjoyed a fresh take on the conversation with some added bits into the Nimitz Tic Tac story that does keep giving us more and more. Stay tuned, folks. As always, keep looking up. You never know what you might see. UFOs seem to be invading both our skies and our news outlets like never before. And more people are starting to look up and are wondering who or what might be out there. In 2016, Ryan Sprague introduced the world to countless UFO encounters that had never been made public before. And now, in the second edition of his book, he revisits these events and introduces brand new UFO cases in Somewhere in the Skies, a human approach to the UFO phenomenon. How have these events changed the lives of those involved? And what might it tell us about the phenomenon? With in-depth follow-ups, brand new chapters, and detailed testimony from credible witnesses and insight from those in the psychological, academic, and scientific fields, Somewhere in the Skies, a human approach to the UFO phenomenon, weaves together a story of stories, attempting to get to the heart of these mysteries one experience at a time. Available now on Amazon in both paperback and ebook. To learn more, visit somewhereintheskies.com.
awake, I was about to abduct you, cuz. Consider your space, consider your life, consider 